My name is Chuck Garriott, and it's a privilege for me to be here to worship with you and to participate in honoring our Lord. I'd like to uh, draw your attention to a passage in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the NIV, so it may be a little bit different than your translation. Starting at verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate your love and your grace within our lives. We pray, Father, that as we look at this portion of your word, that you would help us by your spirit to understand what it is that you're saying to us, that you would keep our minds from even wandering but help us to understand not only the truth that's here, but how it applies to our lives. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us have a history when it comes to the church. I suspect it's possible that for some of you, it's a relatively recent history. You have only known the activity and the ministry of the church for a short while. For me, it was when I was very young. In fact, I cannot remember a time when I didn't know the life of the church. I grew up outside of Baltimore, out in the rural area, and we attended this small country church made out of granite. I remember the hard wood floors and the hard pews. In those days, or in that particular church, uh, if you remember the old uh, theater seating, those wooden chairs, you know, they would fold up. Well, that's what this church had. They didn't even have pews. And I was probably maybe six, seven, I'm not sure, I don't know, maybe this is like in the late 50s, early 60s, after the Civil War, okay, just so you know. And it was Christmas. And as, and as the tradition was at this particular church, they would bring in Santa Claus for Sunday school. I don't know if you do Santa Claus here, I doubt it, for Sunday school, but 
That's a, that was the tradition. And one of the things about that time of year, and you look forward to it as a kid, is that they gave you a box of candies. Now, sometimes they gave you those chocolate cream-filled ones. They were my favorite. But this year, they gave us these, these hard candies. So, so it was this little box of very, very hard candies. And my brother and I, and by the way, my brother uh, has been in the pastorate just as, almost as long as I have. So I just want you to know that both of us uh, haven't shied away from the church. But we were sitting there, maybe about where these two people are, I think. Maybe a little bit closer. And I'll just use the name Pastor Krep as uh, the name of the pastor in the pulpit. He was an elderly man, probably what maybe some of you think of me right now, but maybe even older than what I am. And he started preaching, and my brother and I are sitting there as like five, six, seven-year-olds would do. And, you know, the sermons maybe aren't always applicable or interesting, and so we decided it was time to have a little candy snack. And I think it was my brother Craig who actually did this, but the box of candies came open, and somehow in the midst of, of opening them, the entire content of this little box falls on the floor. Now, here it would be fine because you have carpet, but not on hard surfaces in a church that really isn't very big. And next thing you know, as the pastor is trying to preach and deliver these powerful points, there is nothing more than like hard marbles bouncing all over the floor. And he was not enamored. And so he stopped. And he said, you boys, pick that up right now. So we did, and we sat there a bit humbled by the experience. And of course, church should be a humbling experience for us, but not quite in this way. And so we you know, we felt kind of embarrassed and didn't really want to interrupt the pastor that way. And we were thinking, like, are there going to be consequences? And I don't know, all the things that go through a kid's mind when they've been a little bit humiliated. And the service eventually ended, which it always does. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, it's time to leave. And you want to make sure you're not going to be leaving near the pastor. But Unlike these churches where you have all kinds of doors, there's only one door. And that pastor is out there before the end of the service giving the benediction. And the foyer is about, you know, five by five. I mean, it's hardly room for anything, anybody to stand. And so I'm trying to get around the people who are congratulating the pastor on such a good sermon. But next thing I know, it was the hand of God that took my shoulders and he grabbed me like this and he's looking at me and I'm telling you he is he is a picture of God's wrath and he says to me don't you ever do that again in my church and of course everybody in that little foyer is observing all this and I'm just thinking wow this is really not good you know and you just leave with shame and confusion and everything else. In other words, it wasn't one of those services where you left really encouraged and loved and right and all the things that you would like. Eventually, I did get over it. And I know I had, I, I know my parents had words for those two brothers. Uh, but have you ever, the question is simply, is have you ever had any kind of experience that would mirror that in some way, shape, or form where you found yourself not totally enamored by 
the ministry of the church, by the ministry of God's people, by those who are in charge of ministry, by those who are in leadership, right? I mean, have you ever found that the church is a bit wanting? You may have read or heard of this book uh, that came out some years ago by a guy by the name of Kimball. The title goes something like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Has that ever represented your thinking? Maybe you, you haven't ever read the book. Maybe you've never even heard of it. But as you're sitting here, you're thinking, yeah, there are times where the church has really been disappointing. It's not been fun. It's not been a place where I really ever want to come back. And there may be all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're, you're here today because you've recently left the church that you've been a part of. The point is simply that the body of Christ, the church, can be disappointing, hard, difficult. And it does have an impact in terms of our relationship with Christ. And so I think that's why this particular passage, regardless of where you are in the spectrum, I mean, you may, you may be still in such a mindset that, that as you came to Christ and you got involved in the church that it's nothing but pure glory and it's just been wonderful. And maybe it will always be that way for you and that would be, that would be great. But if you reflect upon this passage here in the book of Philippians, you're reminded that it's not always wonderful for everybody. If you come back to the passage, you'll note that Paul here is speaking to a group of Christians. Christians who, by the way, he's very familiar with because he was involved in seeing this church planted. He was involved in seeing the conception of how God moved in different individuals' lives. And then as he moved in individuals' lives, he moved in those lives corporately. And within time, there was worship. And there were people who were studying the Scriptures and who were spending time together with God. If you go back to uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, you'll see the details of what it looked like for this church to begin. Uh, we're reminded of the fact that this church, which uh, in, at the time in which this letter perhaps was being written, which would have been around A.D. 60 or so, that it was a church that, of course, was under the Roman Empire. And it was pretty much full of people who were part of or who were citizens of, of Rome. The churches, I mean, the community itself uh, being Philippi was named after the uh, Philip of Macedonia by Alexander the Great. And, and so if you think about the community, you're thinking of a community that is fundamentally not Christian in any way, shape, or form. It's made up of predominantly Gentiles, and there's hardly any Jews there at all. But out of that community, this church is born. And Paul now, as he writes to them, he's concerned about what God is doing in their lives and how they are responding to His grace corporately. And one of the things that sometimes we fail to remember is that God works in us, in our lives, individually, of course, but He is always, at the same time, working corporately. And if we love Christ... If we have surrendered to Him, 
then we will take seriously the fact that he has also placed us within the context of his church, of his bride. And so it's absolutely critical for us to love well that bride. Or sometimes I've titled this sermon, Loving Well the Wife of Another. Now sometimes I get in trouble with that particular title. So I gave Ryan the other one, but I mentioned the day that actually this, the real title of the sermon is Loving Well the, the Bride or the Wife of Another, and that is the Bride of Christ. And we have a responsibility to love her well. And that's what Paul is saying here. That if you think of your relationship with Christ only in this kind of a one-on-one -on -one thing, it's just between me and the Lord. And I think those who say, I love Jesus, but I, I don't love his church. To be honest with you, I have to question a little bit if they really do love Jesus. Because if they don't love his bride for whom he's died and whom he cares for, and he's always concerned about, and he's always investing. Well, then if I'm following Jesus, but I'm not following him in that area, then am I really following Jesus? Does that make sense? So it's important for us to, to look at some of the things that Paul says here in regards to what it means for us to love well the bride of Christ or love well the bride or the wife of another, that is, of Jesus. So three things to keep in mind. First of all is this. If I love well... Christ's church, then I embrace the conflicts. Let's just start with that. I'm just telling you right now, it's only going to be a matter of time before you're going to run into conflicts when it comes to the bride of Christ. And I think the conflict in terms of owning that is the fact that we say to ourselves, if these are Christians, these are God's people, and they belong to him, then they're perfect, right? They should be perfect in every way. Perfect sermons, perfect worship, perfect leadership, perfect fellow members. You know, they all should be perfect because they belong to God, and God is perfect. I, maybe that's not totally accurate, right? But I think to some degree, that's how we think. But if you read any of the epistles in the New Testament, in fact... We've got 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. Just read through any of those. Skim, skim it if you would like. And what you will see, even skimming as quick as you can skim, is nothing but conflict and nothing but broken people and nothing but people who clearly need God's grace. And that is to be the picture of the church. People who need the gospel right? And so when Paul speaks about it here in this, this small chapter, he brings out all these problems. He talks about the lack of unity. He talks about the separations and the cliques. He talks about, he's, he's accenting the fact that love is lacking. This is the church that Paul planted, by the way. There is selfish ambition. These people have themselves as the center of the world at times. And in some cases, it's, he says it bears itself out by vain conceit. Snobs, they're arrogant, is another way of putting it. And again, if you look at Acts 16, notice the people that are part of this church. For example, and again, I know we don't have time to look at all these in great details, but if you go back to Acts 16, you'll see the first person that came to Christ was a, a woman 
who was a business lady, businesswoman, very successful, dealt with purple dye materials. I'm not, I, I don't know exactly what, what the market was like, but she apparently was very successful in, and uh, she's a mother. She's part of a family. She comes to Christ. She's baptized, and her whole family is baptized. She made a commitment to Christ. That's a very definite kind of person, right? She's not a student. Could have been a student. She didn't work in government. But she was a businesswoman. She was probably like Proverbs 31 type woman. And then there was the jailer, the guy that was involved in the corrections side of life, right? More of a law enforcement officer, a husband, we're told. A father, he has children. Uh, he has a reputation, and he's concerned about it. There are slaves within that congregation, for sure. There are children. Children who have been baptized are in that congregation. There are people, obviously, who are different generations, ages. There's educational differences. There's social and economic differences. The list goes on. So culturally, some are Roman citizens, some are not. Some have a certain political bent. Some have a, a, the opposite political bent. Some are single. Some are married. The list goes on and on and on. They are different. And in the midst of that difference, I can assure you there's going to be conflict. And there was. And Paul speaks about it. Now, I should say this. When you embrace the conflict within the church because of the, the differences... And differences are important. The differences are important because God made us, and as he made us in his image, he made us with all this uniqueness. That's a part of his creativity. And I think to some degree, that's where we find the conflict. We're just not comfortable with God's form of creativity. But we should be. We should see the differences in ways people view the world in ways they view situations, and the fact that they wanted these colors in this sanctuary as opposed to other colors. And there are other colors out there. I, I was informed recently that uh, when Sherwin-Williams created grays a number of years ago, they created like 80 different versions of gray, of one color, right? Now, what kind of conflict do you think that's going to result in? I'm telling you, it is. It's going to be a pro It's been a problem, I'm sure. I don't know what color these walls are, but... Anyway, but the point is, we, we, we find these differences sometimes not to be so much fun. And so there is that kind of conflict. Now, if we understand that this conflict is, in essence, a reminder to us that these people are made in the image of God, and God, who is incredibly creative, makes people so very different, then we ought to at least have some kind of appreciation for that. But let me say this, and this is why I think it's very important that we embrace the conflict. When I embrace the conflict, okay, there's some kind of tension that's been created. Somebody said something that I don't appreciate, or somebody didn't say something that I should have appreciated, but they didn't, they were silent, and I wanted them to say something. And you, I mean, again, the list goes on and on and on. But the benefit is this is that when there is conflict, it gives me an opportunity to reflect on my own life and my own shortcomings. Have you ever noticed in the Lord's Prayer, the one petition, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. 
Now think about the picture that's presented there. I'm going before the Father and I'm asking his forgiveness. But in that occasion, under those circumstances, I'm also thinking about the sins of others. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sin, as I forgive the sins of others. So you've got this horizontal, vertical thing going on, but in that extra, in that in that particular situation, I am being reminded of my need for grace, my shortcomings. And so I believe that when I'm in conflict with another person, I'm tempted to be sort of mono-thinking at that occasion, meaning that I'm only thinking about your problem and how your issues and your shortcomings and your, your, uh, your insults are affecting me. When that occasion happens, I need to be thinking, Lord, what is it that you're doing in my life? How can, how can this season of tension create an environment where I'm more concerned in praying for that person and looking for ways of loving them as opposed to just simply reacting to them. And I think in many cases as we deal within community, whether it be in our family or those with whom we work or especially within the church, when that conflict comes, instead of just sort of bristling and being irritated with it, that we see it as an opportunity that God is now working in my life in such a way that I need to be paying attention. And I think that's what Paul is, Paul is saying here when he talks about the presence of the conflict. Secondly, when you think about this whole issue of loving well the wife of another, it does mean then that I need to be redefining my relationships with other people. Now again, maybe it's my age or maybe, I don't know, life just wears... But I do find others within the church at times to be irritating. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with the fact that for 20 years I, I pastored at Heritage there in Oklahoma City and I've been involved in ministry for a long time. And when I say a long time, I started in ministry in 1979. So whatever the math is, so it's not quite 40 years. Now that's a long time and there's a lot of opportunities for different kinds of, of conflict. But I do know, just as I mentioned earlier, that those occasions mean then that I need to be thinking differently about life. That God is constantly doing things. And you will never, I don't care how old you grow and become and mature in, that you will always find other people at times to be a bit of a problem. So, what Paul says here is not only are we to recognize the absence of these, of these things, but that we need to be redefining it. So that means that instead of me responding with vain conceit, I need to be abstaining from saying Chuck Ariat is the only thing that really that's important here. I mean, what does Paul mean when he talks about that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So there is this exhortation that in a, in a very real way, I am to be abstaining from certain activity. In other words, I need to be exercising self-control. So abstain from vain conceit, abstain from looking at only for my own interest. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm telling you right now that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't just sort of come in such a way that, oh, this is easy. No, it takes a great deal of work and effort. 
and discipline, actually. It does. It, it just is going to be that way. Then, not only does he tell us what not to be doing, he tells us what we should be doing. So notice, later on in the passage, he says, pursue these healthy patterns. He says, have the same purpose, love, as that in Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Now, just take that one slice of Philippians 2 here. Consider others better than yourselves. So let's just put that in context. Let's go back to the church there and, and think about things here at Grace, for example. So you've got different age ages, which in and of itself is going to be an issue. Because I can tell you right now, just in terms of the media and computers and cell phones and everything, if you're, I have, I'm almost, I'm 65, okay? I'm 65 and a half. I'm just going to be up front with you. A 65 and a half person when it comes to technology and cell phones and everything else that's out there is not the same person as a 20-year-old, right? The 20-year-old has never known anything but, but hands, but fingers on keyboards, and they, just, they can just fly over things in a way that a 65-year-old will not do. So there's a, there's a difference there. There's a difference between that businesswoman and that child, right? Uh, there's a difference between uh, the jailer who thinks of people, first of all, as people who maybe belong, do, either you do or you don't belong in jail. Think about his world in regards to the, the kinds of people he's dealing with day in and day out and how that's going to somewhat taint to some degree, it's going to create some kind of, of, of mindset towards people that's not going to be the same as that of a housewife or of the, the woman who deals in purple. It's just, the point is this, is that the differences are so great so that the opportunities for conflicts are there. But it's in that context that Paul is saying, if you are that jailer, then if even someone who maybe just got out of jail, who is now part of your church, you need to think of them better, he says, than yourself. If you are that 20-something and you're sitting next to someone who's in their 50s and they don't, they don't work all the, the wonderful things that the Internet and everything else has and your, your world is very different than theirs, the question is for you as you're redefining life, how is it that you can treat them better than you? And if you're this 60-year-old executive who's been successful and you have businesses and all kinds of things that other people don't have, how can you think of someone who is just starting college as being better than you? What does it mean for me to think of other people who are very different as being better? And that's what Paul says here. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That means you're going to be intentional. You're going to pray for them differently. When you're in a worship environment, coming and going, you'll at least reach out to somebody and greet them. Introduce yourself to them. Maybe there'll be something in the conversation that will cause you to be able to pray for them. In other words, to be outwardly oriented is really hard. But that's what Paul says. So on the one side, you've got 
embracing the conflict and owning it and recognizing it's going to be part of the body of Christ and it's because of all these differences. And then at the same time, as you consider all these differences, you're saying, these are opportunities for me to consider others better than myself. Now, we could talk about that for quite a while, but we need to get to the third point, which is simply this. That there is a means of carrying out what it means for us to love well the bride of Christ, to love well the wife of another, the church. And that means is both in the pattern and the power of the gospel. And here's what I mean. Paul says in verse 5, in your relationship with one another, in this horizontal, he says, I want your mind to go vertical, to go towards heaven. He says in verse 6, who being, I want you to focus on Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That is our model. And that's not a very fun model because that's really difficult. That's really humiliating. But there's the model. God left all the riches of heaven and humiliated himself by, first of all, coming to this earth and being born as an infant and then living a life pretty much in poverty. And then, after three years within his ministry, he goes to the cross and he dies there. That's, that's the pattern for us. And I think it's a pattern that is difficult for us to really comprehend and appreciate. It's really extreme. But then Paul goes on and he talks to us about the power, right? Actually, I say he goes on. Earlier on, he talks about the power. Now, everything that I've said to you, it's possible that you would have thought to yourself, okay, so what I need to do is I just need to be disciplined enough to make this happen. If I can just work hard enough, this will happen. I can, I can maybe make the church acceptable if I just pray hard enough. Well, I think it is important for us to understand that to consider others better than yourself, even though they are terribly different, they're less educated or they're more educated or whatever the case may be, that that really is hard and it's going to take a lot of discipline. But notice what Paul says at the very beginning of this chapter. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And there's a comma, and then the next word is, then, here's where you go. The point is this. Those sentences in the original are conditional. And they're what they call first-class condition, which means they're conditional, but they're actually making a statement of fact. The fact is that you are the body of Christ, and you have been encouraged because you are united with Christ. Be through the gospel, you have recognized your sin, and you've owned it, and you've gone to God who you have offended, and through Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven and have been cleansed. You are recipients of that gospel. 
that example or the pattern that we referred to earlier with Jesus humiliating himself, you've, been a benef- you've benefited from that. If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship, that is, this relationship with Christ is ongoing. It's not just something that at one point in your life you received his love and now you're kind of on your own. No, every day, every moment of the day, including now, you are a recipient of God's grace and of the power of the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is that as you view the church, not only are you to own and recognize that there is conflict because sin is significant on this side of heaven and that you must redefine, constantly redefining your relationships because as this tension evolves and develops because of the conflict, you're going to find yourself in a mess. You're going to find yourself being shaken, so to speak, by that pastor creep who, you know, is so angry because you messed up his sermon, right, kind of a thing. That's going to happen to you. You're going to be on one side or the other of that equation. So the only way you're going to ever love well that church is not only by knowing the right way in the pattern, but by depending upon the power of the gospel to want to love that person, want to think of someone else better than yourself. And that's what Paul is saying here. And there's a difference because if you leave here thinking, oh, well, this is totally up to me. I can do it on my own. You won't be able to. And what Paul is saying here is that recognize that you have been given through the gospel the ability to love. Is it going to be easy? No. Are you going to find that it will be, you're going to need to, persist, to be persistently going to the gospel to do it? You will be. But you'll be able to, not because it's your ability, but because it's the gospel. So my prayer for you here at Grace, here in Stillwater, 38 to 35, right? Pretty exciting. But the reality is we need to love well the bride of another and we do it through recognizing the conflict, redefining those relationships, but understanding the pattern and the power is all Christ. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your love. Amen.